0: I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. Ben Markovitz is a champion for growth, a leadership expert and the founder and CEO of the Rise Institute, which advances the understanding that human beings can grow and develop beyond their estimations. And that expecting radical growth from those who struggle can and should be the norm. Using his expertise in consulting work, background in education, and boots on the ground research on human behavior, Ben helps leaders accelerate their work and generate breakthrough performance in their employees. Ben believes the world will be transformed if people understand and recognize the possibilities for growth within everyone. Hello, Ben. Hi there, Ed. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here today. And I told folks just a little bit about your background, but would love for you to tell us more about what you've done. But specifically what you're doing today to connect in your marketplace.
1: Yeah, thanks. Uh, so uh, as you said, I, I came up through public education and I was a school principal and a founder of a school network in uh, Louisiana called Collegiate Academies. And um, it was an experience that uh, gave me a front row seat to uh, the biggest challenges I've ever seen in uh, human striving, um, in uh, kids who are trying to um, overcome their obstacles and adults who were facing some of their greatest demons in in helping them do that. Um, and we started with, you know, about 10 adults and about 100 kids, and we now have um, about 400 adults and uh, almost 4,000 kids. And so, uh, I've learned a lot about What it takes to overcome those struggles. And um, as I started to uh, think about that more and more, uh, other folks were asking me about it. So I started helping uh, folks who had jobs similar to mine, uh, really start to scale human development in radical ways across their organizations. And uh, then uh, started getting connected with folks outside the education sector uh, in the for-profit sector and uh, in finance and in technology uh, where lo and behold, people were facing the same issues. What do I do with somebody who struggles, who can't seem to break through? Uh, and so I uh, founded the Rise Institute really as a way to uh, disseminate the ideas that are central to helping people grow radically. Um, and really, some of these are just things that you would see in every teacher's classroom where kids are having breakthroughs. Uh, but they are i think um unfortunately lesser known uh in in other sectors and um so um it's it's my hope that we can create an audience for that so that uh nobody
0: has to ever really feel lost again fantastic well, I think, as I had mentioned to you before our podcast started, my wife's a teacher, so a recently retired teacher, and so <clears throat> the um requirements of her and expectations of her I do think exceed what people typically think. You know, they think a teacher walks in, starts teaching and then leaves for the day. And in fact, their challenges and complexities are extremely deeper. And I've always said that they have three audiences. One are the students. uh, The next are the students' parents. And then the third is administration. And not all of those parties operate at the same speed or same perspective. So I think it's very challenging. So our topic today, of course, is bravery in the workplace. And I'm just wondering, as you think back of starting the collegiate academies, that took some bravery, especially an educational uh, startup, right? Where you're starting something from nothing. I don't think you bought something and started it and modified it. You started it from nothing. I mean, can you think back a little bit, Ben, and maybe share some... Observations of bravery that uh, may have sure uh,
1: and and of course uh, you know as I've heard some of your guests say before, thinking back on moments of bravery is just as easy as thinking back of moments of extreme fear, <laughs> and so <laughs> relatively easy for me to do. Um, I think the the biggest one that we experienced with collegiate academies was just thinking we were starting um, a group of high schools, so nine through twelve schools. Um, that could uh, you know, be effective, uh, but also fairly typical, uh, high school curriculum, get kids ready for college, um, provide a, a good solid service, but recognizing as we started in our opening months that our kids were just so far behind academically, um, both because of the the failures of the school system they'd, they'd been in up until this point, uh, the ravages of poverty and disadvantage on their lives, um, and then, at the time, in Louisiana, of course, uh, the Hurricane and Hurricane Katrina um, had you know had a massive impact on people 's well being so we were enrolling uh, ninth graders who had turned out were reading on average at a third or fourth grade level and uh, similar skill sets in math and and so on and I remember um, kind of humming along really uh, happily with this great community of staff and kids who were all working really hard and Um, It just felt great every day, and I I made, you know, what seemed like an enormous mistake at the time, but was the best thing that ever happened to us, which is I invited a third-party school reviewer, because these people actually exist, um, to come in and take a look at what we were building, because we wanted some feedback. And this person's uh, advice just devastated me, uh, which was, if you look around, you're teaching a whole lot of kids to be perfectly fine with the reality that they're not learning much in your school. Um, So all that happiness you felt, it's actually an anesthetic that you're creating uh, that is allowing you to not actually fix the problem you came here to solve, um, which is educational inequity and and, uh, and the opportunity gap. And so I remember sitting down with my staff and saying, uh, we feel like we're a good school, but the data is telling us that we're not. Um, Our kids are very far behind and they're not growing. And we're trying to kind of force feed them curriculum that at the moment is above their skill level, which is I think because we respect them, but uh, it's also not respecting them to not give them the skills they need to get there. So I remember you know, uh, taking these giant boxes of Lord of the Flies copies that we'd ordered that very few of our kids were able to read and uh, putting them back in the box and starting to invent programs that could help us Um, get the kids to that level really, really quickly. Um, And so that was a process that became our DNA. Uh, Let's look at the hardest thing we possibly can about how we're screwing this up uh, and do something about it right away. And I think that served us uh, incredibly well. It helped us become who we became because eventually um, the traditional school approach uh, wasn't working for so many of our kids. And if we used a traditional school discipline uh, system, we ended up suspending tons and tons of kids, and it wasn't helping. And I remember um, there were so many critics of what we were doing at the time, so many editorials uh, about how you know these folks were just setting up schools and hoping to change the world, but they they weren't really in it for the right reasons. And I remember sharing one day with our staff, one of these editorials that just slammed us, said we were picking and choosing our kids, not uh, we weren't open enrollment the way we said we were, um, and that kids were leaving our schools if they weren't strong, and that's how we were getting the results we were getting. And I asked them to, you know, imagine writing a letter back to this person. And they all wrote little um, paragraphs, you know, asserting how equitable we were and how evolved and progressive we were. And and then I actually threw up the data and it more or less like that person was right. Uh, Kids were leaving our school, kids weren't feeling accepted there, and kids weren't growing there. And so um, it became relatively expected in our environment that we would uh, just look at the most damning evidence we could (laughs) about what we were doing uh, and then spend the rest of the time fixing it. And we were able to do this with uh, relatively inexperienced staff who certainly weren't making a lot of money, uh, who oftentimes were working 70 to 80 hours a week uh, because we had such pride uh, came to be in that in that uh, in that process.
0: Yeah, wow. Well, I can imagine that it was very difficult to navigate through all those different data points and as we think about bravery in the workplace Ben, you know, I'd like to go back to that meeting that you held where you stood up in front of your teachers and administrators to tell them the results from the third party reviewer which was not positive, and it was probably opposite to what they were experiencing. Was that easy for you to do? I mean, did you just walk in and say it? Did you lose sleep the night before? Were you panicked? I mean, what did, did it require bravery to get up in front of these, I think, dedicated, focused people to tell them that what they were doing was not having the outcome that they would have anticipated?
1: Yeah, it was incredibly um, uh, humbling. And I remember, yes, uh, not sleeping the night before. I had this mix of um, you know, shame and excitement, I think. Um, shame because the feedback confirmed what I hadn't expressed to myself, which is I'm putting on a brave face, uh, but I know something underneath is wrong. And I think that's ultimately why I hired this person is I, I wanted to hear what it was and I wasn't able to pinpoint it. Um, and so that, that came uh, to uh, you know, manifest as some level of enthusiasm and excitement that was also keeping me up the night before, which is we finally know what it is. And uh, when that happens, uh, we can fix it. And I think to some degree, I had been uh, looking at leadership wrong and thinking I was occupying a leader's role that was conventional and traditional in a school, that of a principal. And what that meant was uh, I was going to kind of do what people before me had done. I also recognized that I didn't have to do that, um, that I could be unconventional uh, in this role. And when I understood that, it was this enormous release of energy and then a huge dose of fear again, because I realized, as you said, I'm going to have to get up in front of people who have poured their heart and soul into this. And they may not experience it the same way that that I did. And so I have to think about what is allowing me to feel that way and give them some exposure uh, to it also.
0: Right. Well, I think as a leadership coach, you know that truth is extremely important, right? That we can't act and operate in ways that can help us if we don't know how people are actually experiencing us. And if we live in a fantasy world where we don't know how people are actually experiencing us, then we don't operate in ways that can actually impact people. So uh, I think it's great that you did that. And I hope things are stabilizing and normalizing a little bit. When you think about bravery in the workplace, Ben, you know what words or phrases might come to mind for you?
1: Yeah. I I think about the number one obsession in my professional life, actually my entire life, which is just radical growth. And the idea that uh, for so many leaders, uh, and and certainly many that I work with, um, the number one reaction you have to somebody who is underperforming on your team is some kind of personal disgust. <laughs> and you feel like this person uh, has let you down. Uh, you feel like they're letting others down. You want to kind of erase them from your landscape, from your radar. Um, and of course, uh, you know, uh, that's the last thing they need and 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 actually the last thing you need. Uh, and all it takes is actually looking at teachers of really struggling kids to recognize what to do in that sur- situation, which is to uh, believe deeply in the possibilities for this person and then start mapping backwards. So when I think about bravery, I think a lot about phrases like, let's imagine it's five years from now and we've completely solved this problem. How did we do it? Or uh, if we didn't have to worry at all about resources or people and their personalities, uh, what will we start doing right away? Or if we were the, uh, back in school, I would say, if we were the 50 best teachers who had ever lived, how would we be handling this problem right now? Um, and I find that the answers to those questions often give us an ideal solution that usually force us to grow quite a bit. Um, then asking why not, Uh, usually maybe, I don't know, takes down a few, uh, uh, takes that solution down a few notches, but it turns out that asking that really powerful question, uh, does give us most of the direction we need on, on how to get as far as we need to go. And I think that is something that people don't think about because so many people who are performing poorly, um, you know, think of themselves as poor performers, uh, as a result. And, uh. You know, when a teacher sees a student who's getting Ds, uh, a good teacher knows that that kid is probably saying in her head, I'm a D student. And that's a very difficult mentality uh, out of which to find growth. Uh, So, what great teachers do is actually convince that kid that they are an A student. They just haven't done all the work that A students do yet. And changing their identity from poor performer to high performer before they see any evidence of high performance is actually the key. And it's this very counterintuitive thing that I feel like really uh, warrants a a closer look for most leaders. How do I tell people that they're destined for success uh, when there's no evidence of that right now?
0: Well, uh, it sounds like that's maybe what you had done with your meeting with your teachers and administrators, right? Where you had to give them bad news, but keep them focused on success and optimism and a potentially positive future. I think for our listeners who are hearing the term radical change for the first time as a concept, as it relates to bravery, do you have a definition of radical change? I I know you just talked a little bit about it, but I mean, how can an average person know what radical change is?
1: Yeah, it's it's when you see um growth in somebody who has shown little data that suggests they're on an upward trajectory um and uh i think it as i think of it as part of a cycle and i actually use this term a ton the growth cycle um and it's based off that idea that yeah we typically think somebody earns a's because they um they are an a student and in fact, what that means is if you're earning Ds, you tend to assume that person's a D student. And so that sort of makes sense, right? You, you think that you know if you perform well, your identity as a performer drives you to improve even more. And so you get these virtuous cycles, but the downside of course is those that are struggling have a vicious cycle where, uh, they're lowering expectations for themselves. They think their boss doesn't have high expectations for themselves. And so they get worse and worse and worse. Um, and so if, you know, your memory of learning to do something was, uh, you know, I was, uh, trying to make it in sales. I practiced, uh, you know, doing sales. I did pretty well. I was proud of myself. So I kept doing it I set the bar higher, that's a virtuous cycle. And it'd be great if everybody. Uh, learned that way. But for so many people, uh, they start off saying, I'm terrible at sales. (laughs) This did not work out. And my boss thinks I'm terrible at sales and so on. So uh, what an effective leader does, if that person then radically grows is uh, say, look, uh, you are an excellent salesperson. You just have to do X, Y, and Z. And shifting that identity part first We tend not to assume it, but it is actually the most uh, accessible and simple change agent for reversing that cycle. Uh, Because what we think is that performance defines our identity, it's far more often the reverse. Uh, When we have an identity as a high performer, we strive to live up to it uh and this is just very very um poorly known i think among leaders it's extremely well known as i've said among teachers of disadvantaged kids uh, because if they're doing a good job this is how they're doing it they're saying we are all the highest performers in the city and let's just
0: get ready to prove it um well there are lots of uh, statistics that come out right about organizations, teachers, schools, performance, graduation, right? There are people out there, just like the third party reviewer, there's actually people out there who measure this stuff and are curious about it. So radical growth, we could probably talk even more about that particular topic, Ben. I'm just curious, is there another word or phrase that you might think of when you think about bravery in the workplace?
1: I think more than anything, I think about uh, hope. And it's a really, complex word to use. Um, But it is the determinant as to whether somebody believes their next move to push themselves are worth doing. And I think as leaders, we find it so simple. um, We do it without even thinking to communicate to people that they don't have hope. Um, So if uh, you take a a person on your team who's struggling and uh, they drop the ball in front of you and you roll your eyes even for a second without knowing it, that person has just learned that you expected them to screw up. Uh, That nonverbal communication has said, this is the identity you have on my team. You are somebody who screws up. And the um, series of events that then takes place involves that person believing, I have no hope. Um, This person has already written me off. And if I do anything even remotely uh, useful, they won't notice because they're not even looking for it. And so I'm never going to get my boss's approval. And that's the number one thing I wanted when I started working here. It's the number one way I have of understanding how I do well here is what does my boss approve of? And so finally giving up hope on your boss's approval, if you're staying in your job, you go looking for approval elsewhere. And that's where you find, you know, peers, others you're working with who you can uh, kind of create these toxic subcultural moments with usually complaining about your boss. And so what people need is the hope of being accepted, the hope of doing well. If they don't get that from their leader, they cannot be brave. Um, They cannot take move. They cannot take steps that they haven't taken before uh, because they think they'll be uh, useless. Uh, and they don't have a relationship with somebody who believes they can achieve great things. And for anybody in a moment where they're struggling, uh, that is one of the only psychological benefits uh, they can find to help them get out of uh, of that situation. And once they do, a cycle can start where they're doing
0: that more and more, but it does take the leader making the first move. Well, I love that we're ending our conversation on the word hope. I know as a leadership coach over the last 12 years, uh, in many ways, it doesn't matter to me how a person has been performing. If they have hope that they can improve and they're committed to that, they're in, right? And I will work with them because hope is such a powerful influencer on behavior. And so I love that uh, we're sharing that with people. So radical growth and hope two great concepts that people should think about when they're thinking about bravery in the workplace. Ben, thank you so much for your time today. It was really great speaking with you. I think we could continue to go on. I might have to have you back to talk a little bit more about these, but if people do want to reach out and talk with you or find out more about you or the work that you're doing, how can they connect? Yeah, with you? Thank you. Uh,
1: it's, uh, you can find me at benmarkovitz.com. Uh, and my last name is with a, a C and a V, uh, and, uh, actually probably the, the best place to, to go on that website is there's actually a little self-evaluation where you can, uh, learn to what degree you already, uh, lead through growth. And uh, it'll give you some direction to take after that uh, to, to start using uh, some techniques uh, the next day.
0: Great. Great. Well, fantastic, Ben. Thank you again for spending some time. Thank with you.
1: Us. Real pleasure to be here.
0: And to our listeners, thank you for joining us this week. And we hope you join us next week as we further explore being brave at work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at BeBraveAtWork.com and or download and listen to our podcast on Apple, Google, CastBox, Overcast, Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in. We are everywhere. Our podcast today was sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies, whom you can reach at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. And a reminder to check out my new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Own Success, which is available everywhere online. Do you have something to say yet are not saying it? Do you have something to do yet are not doing it? Now is the time to be brave at work. Have a great week.